Hey guys, welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford. I'm an author and writer about all things fitness and outdoorsy. And of course, I do a lot of things fitness and outdoorsy. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm Molly's co-host here on the Consummate Athlete Podcast. And I'm a kinesiologist working mostly with endurance athletes and cyclists on moving better, moving faster, moving with more fun. Yeah, speaking of faster, we've had a nice quiet week at home, but things are about to kick off in a hectic way because we're heading to Reno for U.S. Cyclocross Nationals, so that should be an exciting weekend for us coming up. Yeah, we've been dealing with Canadian winter. It's been quite, the East Coast has been quite cold, but lots of snow, so we've been snowshoeing and skiing and running and walking in in a lot of snow and and testing out different gear and clothing and everything else Uh, nothing is enough is pretty much what i've i've now realized there is no amount of clothing that will ever make me warm when it's it's negative 30 out it's a lot of coats a lot of coats um anyway though today's guest is abby bales she is a physical therapist from new york city she actually as of this episode opening has just, uh, or this episode coming out has just opened her clinic in New York City where she focuses on the pelvic floor for athletes. It's Reform PT. It's in New York City. Uh, so today, obviously, we talk a ton about the pelvic floor. Um, we talk a bit about the pelvic floor for men, of course, but we really do focus on pelvic floor for female athletes. And this is a, you know, kind of under under talked about under discussed issue that a lot of female athletes whether you're a cyclist whether you're a runner whether you're a crossfit person uh, will end up dealing with yeah it's quite you know important to go and see uh, a specialist like this you know around any sort of childbirth but often you know there's just female athletes especially you know with running uh, trampolines skipping you know if there's any of these exercises that you avoid or, or find that you have to you know urgently go to the washroom it's pretty important you go get it checked out and you know often it's it's not you know a, a huge deal to get over it but it's something that you know is is fixable which i think is not common knowledge it's not talked about sometimes it's even like a badge of honor in, in some gyms and stuff that yikes that's a weird badge yeah of honor. it's sort of odd <laughs> Yeah, it's it's definitely something that's come across my radar a bunch in the last few years, ever since I came out with uh, my women's book, Saddle Sore, uh, where we talked about all kinds of awkward topics that, you know, don't often get discussed on the group ride. We talk a bunch about saddle sores and the skin issues, but it wasn't really until I did the newer edition of the book that I started realizing that the pelvic floor was actually a really important part of that, and you know, a lot of women suffer from a lot of discomfort there. And whether you're talking about actual pain because you have too tight of a pelvic floor or if you have too loose of a pelvic floor, you end up with the incontinence issues. Right. But anyway, Abby and I get into that in super in-depth conversation. And this is actually the, like, Laura Powers, who is actually from Collingwood, has a, a clinic that she's opened here. Um, and I've had a few athletes go in and see Laura about different things. Again, it's not always uh, incontinence. Um, but... We've had two episodes now, so if folks, if they want more info, can go back and, and listen to that episode as well. It was one of our earlier episodes, I yeah, think. Yeah, we'll have that and a ton of other goodies in the show notes. And yeah, I'm really excited about this one. I think it's covering some really important information that often gets swept under the rug. Yeah, so, so I mean, hopefully it's enjoyable. If yeah. anyone's at U.S. Cyclocross Nationals this weekend in Reno, we'd love to connect. So uh, not just about pelvic floor stuff. You can I just mean, say hi you can in come general. and talk to about that too. Molly will field all those questions. Um, but yeah, we'd love to chat. And as always, 
send suggestions for episodes and people. We're always looking for our new next episode. Yep. And rate and review on iTunes. All right. And check us out at consummateathlete.com. Yeah. And enjoy this episode. Let's dive in. Okay, first of all, are you from New York City originally, or how did you end up there? No. No. um, So both of my parents are New Yorkers, um, but they're like... Long Island and upstate New York. Um, okay. And then they moved us out of New York when we were very, very small. We lived in Chicago for 20 years, just a suburb outside of Chicago. And then we moved to Chicago, and that, or um, excuse me, we moved to Colorado. And that's where I went to high school and college. The first time was in Colorado. So I'm mostly a Midwestern girl. And then um, my first degree is in musical theater. And so when I moved to New York, I thought I wanted to do musical theater. And that was in 2002. So um, my dad moved, helped me move to New York and, um, I lived in Brooklyn and, um, I hated musical theater work. <laughs> I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I loved putting plays and musicals together with my friends and that was really fun and college was a really fun time, but I hated the business side of it. And, um, my whole life I was an athlete. My whole life I gravitated toward working with other athletes, um, I, I, I was always looking to take another class in high school. I took a a sports medicine class in high school that was taught by the athletic trainer. And, um, I volunteered with him and worked on with the football team. And in college, I taught group fitness classes, um, at the, at the local, at our, um, at our school's gym and our rec center. And I was always hanging around with those people but I just never made the connection that that's where my interest was. I always thought that I just wasn't smart enough to do it. So until I really left and um, moved to New York and I got a side job as a personal trainer, I realized that it was just a matter of learning. And my husband was very um, instrumental in getting me to realize that I just, I learned differently from other people when it came to things like biology class and chemistry class and physics class and math. But the other things were innate in me. And I always was interested in the way the body moved and how it healed and things like that. And so that was really the conduit to me going into physical therapy was working as a personal trainer and dealing with people, um, working as a run coach and dealing with people, injury prevention and, and helping people get back from injuries um, as a personal trainer. And so it was a really nice segue into uh, my interest as a physical therapist later in life. Um, and so then I applied to school and had some really wonderful people who vouched for me even though I wasn't the smartest person in the room, that I was a valuable valuable asset to the physical therapy program at NYU, and I got in, and um, and then I everything there is is history. You just go through school, get your get your degree, get your license, and um, and then I became really interested in women's health as I started to see my friends and women around me and women who are older than me who were athletic talking about all the problems that they had had while they were pregnant and postpartum. Mm -hmm. And it really piqued my interest um, in both on a um, microscopic and macroscopic level. So like what's happening with hormones and blood and um, nutrients and things like that and how that's affecting women while they're running and and postpartum and, and not even just running, but exercise in general and how many women were taken out of the exercise world or self-selected themselves out of it because of the postpartum injuries that they had Mm -hmm. sustained Um, And I found that, you know, and it's it's certainly going to be linked to obesity for women in their 40s and 50s. And then that obesity is linked to every type of cancer that there is. Um, And so I and I was very interested in in that kind of flow from from childbirth to 
later in life inactivity or just lack of knowledge of how to get back to being active. Um, I found it to be disconcerting that that wasn't a focus when we were looking as a as a nation at the obesity epidemic. Yes, we look at children, but I was trying to figure out what the trajectory was for women women specifically. And that seemed to be a really common theme in women who were 40, 50 years old, who I was personal training. It was when they had children, they became significantly less active, had a lack of education of how to deal with the injuries they had, dealt, they had um, incurred postpartum or peripartum, and, and then how for them to get back into being active later in life. I love that you just said the injuries incurred, because I don't think most people think about it like that. But like, you just pushed a human being out of you. Like, but you if, also carried it for 10 months. Yeah. If that doesn't you know? stress your body and injure it or count as an injury, I don't know what does, but it doesn't seem like a lot of women would consider like physical therapy after childbirth as a thing that they should maybe be considering. 100%. So for, it's a medical event. It is an event that lasts for 10 months and culminates in a hospitalization. So in what world that doesn't count as an injury or a medical event or a reason for a woman to have follow-up rehabilitative care? I, I don't. I don't know what world that would that would not qualify a woman mm -hmm. to have physical therapy. And and you know our our insurance structure and our medical system structure is so stuck in a misogynistic view that it's a very natural thing and that all everything that happens afterwards is natural. It's it's absolutely not true. It's um, it devalues what women go through. You know, yeah. both with postpartum postpartum depression, with um, with postpartum injuries, with women who are injured during pregnancy. You know, sacral injuries or you know um, pubic symphysis dysfunction where it separates. You know, we we really we treat these women with medical care. The, the greatest amount of medical care during pregnancy and then afterwards we throw them away and tell them that well you have this baby now and it's all natural so goodbye <laughs> you know so, so enjoy that <laughs> yeah so good luck you know and good luck with that like there's no there's very little um there's very little literature that is given to women when they're leaving the hospital about postpartum care. Wonderful things have been going on with lactation consultants and nurses who are becoming lactation consultants and women getting support there. And I think that's so great. And I certainly benefited from that both times when I was in the hospital with my children. But in terms of the long-term care, women are going to eventually stop breastfeeding. And and and, and it's great that, that we're giving them that information during that time. But I want to take it a step further and say, at your six-week visit, I, with your your OBGYN, I want you to ask for a physical therapy uh, recommendation. Mm -hmm. And every OBGYN should have a pelvic floor physical therapist who they say, this is my go-to person. And so it's incumbent upon the physical therapist to start reaching out to the OBGYNs to say, this is what I do. I have had um, maybe five OBGYN who have been specifically OBs who have been my patients who when they come in and I ask them what they do I, I kind of say well you already know this stuff and they say no really talk to me like I don't know this stuff because this <laughs> is not stuff I do I don't evaluate the strength of anyone's pelvic floor I don't check their musculature for trigger trigger points 
I don't treat overactive bladder. I don't treat stress urinary incontinence. I don't treat painless sex. I don't treat these kind of dysfunctions. I don't know anything about what you do. Mm-hmm. So then it's, it, I remember what, I remember the first time an OB told me that and never since have I treated them like anything than just a regular patient who's walked in the door who has no idea what their levator ani muscle is versus their bubble cavernosis. So I've taken that off the plate because that's not what they do. And they recognize that that's not what they do, but I need to be the, the person and, and we physical therapists need to be the people who say, this is what I do. This is how I can help your patients. Mm-hmm. And here's my card and you can refer the patients to me. And, you know, I have people who inquire about my services, um, who, you know, maybe they, they need a different type of, of physical therapist for, you know, insurance reasons. And then I have a list of people who I can send them to because, you know, it's New York City and there are choices. Um, Or I don't, you know, I don't do visits on these days or whatever it is. And so I never leave them in the lurch and say, no, that's not for me. I can't help you. And I don't think that any OB should leave the person, in this woman in a lurch or any general practitioner who is, you know, seeing a woman, she's saying, well, you know, I've had this increase in in loss of urine or a lot, you know, fecal incontinence. I don't think that they should say, well, that's just normal. I think that they should have someone who they can refer out to immediately and make sure that that continuum of care goes beyond what is beyond their scope of practice. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I was just thinking while you were talking, it seems like a few years ago we started talking about postpartum depression and that sort of became destigmatized, I guess. And then the past couple of years, it's been all about like destigmatizing breastfeeding and all of the stuff surrounding that sort of feels like the pelvic floor and like the the lady parts is still kind of this like final frontier that we're still just like not ready as a nation to accept and put on the news right well as a nation as a nation we're not ready for for you know (laughs) female anything i mean we're trying to we the government and and the certain parts of our our nation and are still trying to take away women's rights um, and female reproductive rights are not just the right to have babies, but it's, you know, it's the right to have medications that, that, you know, between me and my OB think that I, I should be able to have access to and, mm-hmm. and procedures that me and my OB agree that I should have access to. So, you know, when you're talking about rehabilitative care, it usually falls very far down that ladder and that's okay. But we as a nation are really just not ready to talk about women's reproductive rights. And this, this goes along with that. You know, this is the right to have a rehabilitative expert care for me after this medical event. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that we're destigmatizing breastfeeding. I love that we're destigmatizing things like doing Kegels. You know, last year on the Oscars gift bag, there are all all these types of things. And LV is a company that makes a Kegel tracker. And LV was a, a sponsor, and they put a Kegel tracker in every Oscars gift bag. So everybody who was an Oscars presenter, was an Oscars winner, you know, was anybody who was part of the Academy got this gift bag with an LV Kegel tracker in it. And then Vanity Fair picks up their, you know, that, that information. And then you have different celebrities talking about, um, you know, things like endometriosis. You have Lena Dunham who's talking about it. You, you have um, any number of women who are bringing out that they've had, issues with pain postpartum. Whitney Port, who was on the Hills, was just talking about how she's had all these issues with, you know, pain, quote unquote, down there. 
um, and, you know, trying to have a sexual relationship with her husband postpartum. And, and I think it's wonderful that these women are talking about it. And I want women to talk about it more because, like you said, if you're if you're telling me that you don't have any of these symptoms postpartum, you're not having any you know, any postpartum depression, you're not having any problems with your nipples, that you're not having any issues with painful sex or, you know, dryness or, um, you know, your hair loss or fecal incontinence or urinary incontinence, I'm going to go ahead and call you a liar. And I'm going to call you a liar <laughs> to your face. And then I'm going to say, I would love for you to, to um, allow for me to assess the musculature of your pelvic floor. And then we're going to find out what's really going on. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that if we can normalize the idea that giving birth is a medical event, then I think the next logical step is to provide women access to uh, physical therapists to have a pelvic floor evaluation postpartum and start preventing some of these injuries that end up being lifelong injuries like fecal incontinence, urinary incontinence, you know, hip pain, labral tears, sacral pain, tailbone problems, um, diastasis recti and, and, and how that all ties into, um, t- ties into uh, menopause um, and what's happening with a, a woman after that. You know, we talk about vaginal rejuvenation surgery, but why are, why are women having vaginal rejuvenation surgeries? Because, you know, they're losing elasticity of their, um, of their skin, of their pelvic floor musculature. And could that have been treated 10, 15 years ago with a topical, um, a topical estrogen cream? Maybe it could have been, could it have been prevented with, um, good pelvic floor physical therapy, maybe, you know, all of these surgeries that end up be happening in the 60s and the 70s, years, of, decades of life for women, um, pelvic organ prolapse and things like that, could they have been prevented? So we're really talking about treating a woman, yes, but preventing surgeries later in life that, that take women out of being healthy, have living healthy, active lifestyles well into their 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'm going to back it up for a second for the people yeah, who sure. are listening to this that maybe don't totally understand. Explain the pelvic floor and like what it entails. Because I feel like this cool, is like yeah. a thing we like talk about. And I think, you know, most people kind of generally get the idea of where it is. But yeah, the layman's perspective, what the heck is the pelvic floor? <laughs> sure. So if you think about looking from your body from the top of your head down, and if you think about the bottom of your pelvis underneath the bones of your pelvis, underneath your hip bones, um, that under part where you have the exit from the rectum, you have your vagina, you have your urethra, you think of that being the bottom of a basket. The layers of the pelvis are the bottom of the basket. The handlebars of the basket are all the ligaments, the tendons, the musculature of the abdominal cavity and the hip musculature. So the bottom of that basket is your pelvic floor. So gravity, your pelvic floor is constantly working against gravity, directly against gravity. And so the handles of the basket that are holding it up are the ligaments and the abdo- that attach into the abdominal cavity. So when people are talking about, you know, the lifting up of the pelvic floor, those handlebars and the abdominal cavity um, of the ligaments and the, and the tendons and the connective tissue, the musculature, help to lift the pelvic floor up so that when it contracts, it's not ha- it's not being yanked down entirely by gravity. It's being supported above by the handlebars. You know, when you fill a basket up, and the bladder sits right on top of the pelvic floor, right? The bladder mm-hmm. and the um, 
and the, and the intestines. So when you fill up a basket and the basket can't hold it, the bottom of the basket starts to sag down towards the ground. And that's exactly what happens to your pelvic floor when it becomes lax or loose or elongated. And so when the bladder is full, the pelvic floor relaxes a little bit and falls down, but is able to hold the bladder when you're continent. When you're incontinent, the musculature of the pelvic floor isn't strong enough. And you can imagine that basket separating a little bit at the center and leaking the insides. And so that's essentially what we're talking about when the pelvic floor, the musculature has three different layers, the superficial, the middle, and the deepest layer. Um, and it's, and male pelvic floors and female pelvic floors are very, very similar. Um, we have different openings and we have different things coming out of the openings, but we have a very similar musculature. Um, so when you're talking about continence, you're talking about both urinary and fecal incontinence because the bowels are sitting right above that, the bottom of that pelvic floor basket too, right? It's all being held in there. And so those muscles are, are, are made up of fast twitch fibers and slow twitch fibers just like every other muscle in your body, they are, they are um, smooth muscle. So they, they can contract, they can relax, they can contract and relax. And that's, that's basically what they do all day long. Um, when you urinate, they, you know, they relax for the, the bladder to be let out. They surround the, the openings um, of your vaginal cavity uh, where your, your urethra comes out um, and then when, where your uh, rectum comes out. So whenever there is a dysfunction in that musculature, an inability to contract or an, an uh, over-contractility of the musculature, you can have a dysfunction of either uh, fecal or urinary dysfunction. Perfect. Um, okay, so we have the, the too loose means that you tend to be incontinent. You might have urine leaking out. Are there any other symptoms to, that kind of might indicate that your pelvic floor muscles are too lax? Yeah. So when you sit down, there can be a feeling of like there's something coming out of your vagina or you're sitting on something. And that can be either uh, a cystocele or a rectocele, which means that um, either your bladder or your rectum, uh, the wall, so they all share walls, right? So right in the middle is your vagina and to one side is your urethra, one side is your rectum. And so if either one of those walls is falling in towards the vagina, you can have a cystocele, which is your, you know, your bladder that's falling into your vaginal cavity or a rectocele is where your rectum is falling into your, your vaginal opening. Or you can have a, um, a prolapse of the uterus, and that is where the uterus is actually um, coming out of the vaginal opening and sinking down um, because the musculature is not holding it up anymore. So a feeling of that you're sitting on something when you sit down or a pressure or a pain can be a symptom of that as well. And you can have the muscles being overactive too. You can have them be too tight and have right. similar symptoms of the incontinence and stuff. But when you have a laxity of the pelvic floor, it can feel very much like you're sitting on something when you sit down. And so it's more comfortable to sit on something like a donut or a cushion. Okay. And that's, that's definitely something to get evaluated. Um, and you can also have low back pain. So when the pelvic floor is not being supported, it means that you, you know, you have these hips and these glutes and these, you know, ab muscles and stuff like that, these back muscles, but the pelvic floor is instrumental in the stability of your pelvis as a whole. So when the pelvic floor is lax and not actively holding your pelvis 
in good positioning. You can have low back pain. You can have hip pain. You can have abdominal pain because things start to shift in ways that they're not meant to because they're not being supported. Right. That makes sense. And then you mentioned it briefly, but what about when the pelvic floor is too tight? And that's when doing Kegels would actually be a bad thing, correct? One, yeah, 100%. <laughs> so, and, and maybe not necessarily everybody is different. And so, but when, in general, when you're talking about an overactive pelvic floor, we're talking about things like painful sex, painful vaginal exams at the OB, um, painful use of tampons. We're talking about things like stress urinary incontinence where you're, you know, you're fine throughout most of the day and then you jump or you cough or you sneeze and you have loss of urine. That can also happen with overactive bladder. That can also happen with, um, a lax pelvic floor as well. Um, but when you're dealing with, you have to imagine that that mus- musculature is so tight and it's so tight and it's so tight and so any disruption to it, you'll leak urine, you'll leak feces. Um, and pain and tightness of that feeling. Um, but also it's difficult to sit or squat or, or um, change positioning because the musculature is so tight that it's not allowing for that freedom of motion that the pelvis normally has. So there's that happy medium that the pelvis has that any joint has, any structure of the body. And when it's not at that optimal length tension relationship can cause problems. Mm -hmm. So again, you're looking at like low back pain is a big one for this abdominal pain, pubic pain, um, hip pain is a huge one for this. Um, And a lot of times it's pain down the inside of the leg because of the way that the uh, nerves are innervated. You can feel a lot of inner thigh pain and wrapped around to the back of your thigh. Um, and that's a lot of times an overactive pelvic floor because they share nerves uh, oh, okay. and to where the, the adductor attachments are, are right around where the obturator internus attachments are. So if the obturator internus is tight, it can also cause a warped movement um, of the adductors and, and the nerves that, that innervate both of them. Okay. Now, would those symptoms be pretty similar between men and women? Yes. Yeah. The symptoms are pretty similar. You know, with men, you're going to deal a little bit more with like erectile dysfunction or pain with ejaculation, things like that. Okay. Um, those, those are a little bit more for, from men, but also, you know, that similar kind of thing of like pain with movement, um, changing positions. Um, they can have pain, you can have pain with urination because the muscles are surrounding your urethra, um, the muscles up in the bladder. So, Men, it's a little bit different, and their exams are a little bit different, but the musculature is very much the same. Yeah, I was going to actually say next thing, I would love it if you could kind of walk through what an exam for women looks like, because I know that's sort mm-hmm. of like a, a bit of a sticking point, right? I mean, like we all kind of dread the annual OBGYN visit on principle, so I feel like adding oh, another thing is a little terrifying as well, so make it less terrifying. Oh. I want to make it less terrifying by saying two things. One of one of which is like I'm not interested in your ovaries, and they are very high up, and that's usually that's usually one of the most uncomfortable things that they do. Right? They stick their hand up there, and then they push down on your belly. That I'm not interested oh, in doing that at yes, all. Yes, the worst. That's the worst. The other thing is a speculum. Don't use it. Never. You will never see a speculum in a in a physical therapist's office. We don't use them. We're not interested in looking inside your vagina. Um, there's nothing that I have to see in there when I, and, and like, I'm not opening your cervix. I'm not going anywhere up there. I don't do any of that. So it's literally one finger. And if you look at your finger, there are three knuckles. The first knuckle, second knuckle, and third knuckle represent about the depth of the pelvic floor musculature um, going through the vaginal canal. So in the first 
knuckle just past your nail, you're going to get into that first layer of pelvic floor musculature. And the second layer, second layer is going to be at the second knuckle and the third deepest layer. That's as deep as you're going to go. And that's your index finger. We're not talking like a creepy long middle finger. It's your <laughs> index finger. It is like shorter than a tampon. I'm not even going as far in as a tampon. And what's happening is in that first exam, really the first couple of things that we're going to do is talk about what you, you know, what you're experiencing and stuff. And then really what every pelvic floor therapist is going to do is start with looking because we can get, get a lot of information by watching you cough, attempt a Kegel, attempt a bulging. Those are all things that I will be able to see visually without having to touch you at all. We're going to watch and see the muscles around your vagina, your adductors that we we're just talking about, your glutes, your abdomen. And I'm going to watch you do those things, those coughing, the Kegel, the bulging, and those kinds of things. And I'm going to get a lot of information just by looking. If a person is, un- if a woman is uncomfortable with an internal pelvic floor assessment, there's still a lot that we can do externally because the, mu- like we talked about, the musculature of the pelvic floor is supported by the abdomen, by the glutes, by the adductors, by all these other things. So. That's, that's also something that you should know right off the bat is that you are not required to have an internal exam. If you choose to have an internal exam, it gives you a lot more information to work with. So we start by inserting just until that first layer that hits, which is that first knuckle, and asking you to Kegel, cough, um, bulge, and looking to feel for any trigger points on either side. The pelvic floor is like a clock, right? So it's circular. So the the insertion is right through the center, but I'm checking all of the different directions on the clock to figure out if it's left side, if it's right side, if it's both sides. Do you have a scar? Is your is your did you have an episiotomy? And is that episiotomy scar bothering you at the first layer, second layer, or third layer? How deep did did that tearing go? And so do everything at the first layer, everything at the same thing at the second layer, asking you to, to Kegel, to bulge, to, you know, is there any tenderness anywhere and pressing through the tissue just to feel if there's any tenderness, any trigger points, any scarring. And then the third layer is where we might hook our finger around because the obturator internus is on the inside of the pelvis, pelvis. And that's literally just making a little tiny hook of your finger. And, and then it's feeling along the pelvic brim to see if there is any, any trigger points there. And that's in, as far as internal exams, that's as much as the exam portion happens. You know, we look, we ask you to do things and then we feel, and if that's as much as you have tolerance for it, that's fine. If you only have tolerance for the first layer, the second layer, that's totally fine. I have lots of information from there. If we get all the way to the third layer, fantastic. But typically, you know, a pelvic floor physical therapist is very in tune with what their patient is tolerant of and if a woman's coming in for vaginismus and has pain with anything coming near her vagina we don't have to start with that right away and a lot of women have dryness and pain and you know and there's also that emotional side of having a baby or if a woman has had any um, negative sexual experiences we want to be very uh, aware that that might trigger something and so we always talk about that beforehand we always talk about and explain the exam beforehand to make sure that the woman is as comfortable as possible Mm -hmm. throughout the entirety of the exam. The other thing is, is that most physical therapists, public floor physical therapists, if not all of them will tell you this, you absolutely have the right to have somebody in there with you during your exam. Mm -hmm. If you are ever at any point uncomfortable with that, then you can have your partner, a friend, 
I could have my colleague come in and, and be there during the exam if anything makes you uncomfortable. And the other side of it is, is that people should know that pelvic floor physical therapy is not limited to women. It's not limited to men. And there are people who do pelvic floor therapy for children, in which case they don't ever do a physical internal exam. Mm-hmm. So just, just to get the whole broad scope of it, um, it's where we try to be very, very aware of what our patients have gone through. And that's why we talk to them beforehand and explain what it's going to be. But yeah, that's the extent of an internal exam. And it does not have to be repeated every time. That's not, you know, an assessment that we have to make, which is kind of unique to pelvic floor therapy. Um, we teach the patient how to deal with trigger points and, and how to Kegel and, and things like that. So we like to empower our patients so that it's not something they have to do every single time is submit to an exam every time we see them. Yeah. I love that. Um, so if you have, you primarily work with athletes, um, and pregnant, yeah. post-pregnant athletes, but what are some of the, are there any correlations between, you know, do runners tend to have lax pelvic floor while like a CrossFit person might be more inclined to have like a tightness issue? Have you seen any kind of correlation between like what someone does athletically and what their pelvic floor is doing? I haven't, um, and I don't. I'm not aware of any studies that have shown that. I mean, there aren't a lot of studies on the pelvic yeah. floor in general, mm-hmm. but I would venture. I would venture that most athletes, most female athletes, have adequate pelvic floors because they have been working at, at a different level for most of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that's that's not to say. I mean, I'll. The, the most the most women I've ever assessed in a weekend are always at my pelvic floor courses, right? So always at my continuing education. I could give an exams for upwards of 20 women in a course of three days. And so, you know, and that gives you such a wide variety of women. But even with my patients, there's such a wide variety of them that there are some women who have never had a baby, never had incontinence, and uh, never had any kind of abdominal trauma. They cannot Kegel. They have a diastasis of one centimeter separation, um, and, and, they're, and they're unable to contract their pelvic floor. And that's athletic. That's a young 20-something athletic woman. Mm-hmm. And then you can have somebody who has had three children, who, has, uh, who doesn't exercise, and who has no symptoms of incontinence at urinary or fecal, and they have no abdominal separation, and they have no no problems postpartum, and they have no tenderness with sex. So I don't really think there's a huge correlation, but I would venture a guess that most women who are athletic prior to having children have adequate pelvic floors um, for rehabilitative purposes. Mm-hmm. And is there any, I mean, I guess this is sort of a a strange question, but is there any like basic care that we can be doing for our pelvic floor before we have kids or before we have issues, I guess? Like what, what is good care and keeping of the pelvic floor? What does that entail? A lot of women, even female pelvic floor physical therapists, um, don't have a really great relationship with the musculature of their pelvic floor. It's mm-hmm. working because it's designed to work, but it's not, they don't have a really good relationship with willfully contracting it. It's contracting because that's what it does and because the neuromuscular system is trained to do that. But if the neuromuscular system fails them, they are unable to mentally say, I want to contract my pelvic floor and be able to do it. So I always recommend that women who are thinking of becoming pregnant 
have an initial pelvic floor examination to find out if they are able to, you know, think about their pelvic floor and contract it properly. Mm -hmm. It does two things for them. Gives them the information of the feeling of contracting their pelvic floor on command, but it also gives them the information as to whether or not they know how to bulge. And bulging is what you do when you push a baby out of your vagina. So if you are unable to bulge and only able to Kegel, when you try to bulge, you're going to Kegel and keep that baby in as opposed to pushing that baby out. You're not going to assist in it. It's going to be more more difficult. So Mm -hmm. it only benefits you to know whether or not you're able to Kegel up and bulge out. And those are two things that women should both be able to do with just just their mind. Like I want to, I want to do this. I should be able to do it on command. You should be able to do both. So that's the first thing that I think is beneficial about having a a pelvic floor assessment prior to. The other thing is, is that you start to understand from a pelvic floor perspective, what are safe exercises to do at any point during your pregnancy Mm -hmm. that will continue to assist in that neuromuscular, maintaining that neuromuscular connection, but also will keep your pelvis strong and your abdominal muscles working and your kegels happening because you know what it feels like to kegel. You can kegel on command. You know, you know exercises, exercise progressions that are safe throughout pregnancy as opposed to just shrugging and saying, ah, you know, I'll wait until afterwards and deal with it. So you're empowered with exercises and knowing what it feels like to kegel and, and work with your pelvic floor and what other exercises you can do because the pelvic floor is more than a kegel because it's supported by all that other musculature. So finding out what you can do, you know, prior to and during a pregnancy from a pelvic floor physical therapist is going to give you a lot more information than just somebody high-fiving you and saying, go do your kegel. Mm-hmm. So that's what's really you want to do prior to having children is get an assessment and then ask the physical therapist, can you give me a list of exercises that I can keep up until I get pregnant or ones through my first trimester or ones through my second trimester or ones through my third trimester? You know, they're going to give you lots of things for your hips, for your abdominal cavity that you can do. A lot of women say, well, I'm not going to do abs because I'm pregnant. And I'm like, hold on, hold on. You can move in all sorts of different ways that are going to challenge your core stability. That's not a crunch. You're never going to hear me giving somebody a crunch, but you might hear me giving somebody a belly pull-up on all fours that allows for them to continue to contract their abdominal cavity as well as their pelvic floor that's going to help assist them in maintaining that pelvic stability throughout their pregnancy as they start to gain weight and their their pelvis starts to tip forward. So. Mm -hmm. The best thing for you to do is to get with somebody who knows what they're doing and knows how to prevent these types of injuries from coming about. Um, and those are public floor physical therapists. That's super interesting. And I mean, have you seen like if you work with someone before pregnancy, does it tend to be less of an issue post pregnancy? Like, are they able to bounce yes. back and be back to, you know, running and moving and all that stuff faster? So I wouldn't, I, I try not to categorize not it as bouncing. <laughs> yeah. I try not to categorize it as bouncing back because I don't think any of us ever get back to what we were prior to babies. We don't, there, there is no making yourself completely whole again the way that you were. It's more like you find your new normal, what you're dealing with now. It's, it's more like moving forward. But I will say that the women who I work with prior to having babies, the majority of them have, if they end up giving birth vaginally, the majority of them have a more productive 
laboring time, um, meaning that they're not, you know, just walking around in labor. They dilate faster. They deliver faster than, than other women. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't prove any of that. So I won't, I won't say that it's going to be, yes, you're going to do your public floor physical therapist exercises and you're going to give birth much easier. But it, it does tend to be like that if you ever able to get to live vaginally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say that the women, they return to their activity, maybe not sooner, but they're, they're not out with injury a year later. Right. You know, and, and that's, that's where, where I come in, in more than just being like, oh, a personal trainer who does public floor stuff or, you know, a nurse who has in, you know, uh, an interest in public floor rehabilitation, because what I'm looking for with my women goes beyond just their pelvic floor. It goes into what, what's happening with your hormones. How long did you breastfeed? How long did you have that deprivation of estrogen in your body? What is your bone density? Because when you're pregnant, you know, you have this dip in estrogen. And while you're, while you're breastfeeding, you have this lack of estrogen in your body. You're not having a period. And so you're at risk for bone density issues and connective tissue injuries. And so that's where with my patients that I really tend to focus on is, yes, your pelvic floor in, you know, incontinence, pain, strength of your core, getting you back to being active. But when you're looking at, at these professional athletes, you really kind of want to take an eye of a year later or two years postpartum and they're having connective tissue injuries like, you know, plantar fasciitis or Achilles tendinopathy or they have stress fractures. And those are the kinds of things that they're still postpartum injuries. Mm-hmm. That bone density, that loss of estrogen for the time that they were pregnant and the time that they're breastfeeding leads to a dip in bone density and then they have they end up with a stress fracture because they returned to running a week later, two weeks later, and then they ran a marathon within a year. And this goes for not just professional athletes, but, you know, everyday, everyday athletes. You, and, and it really, it, it dates back to your adolescence. So your bone density is like a bank, and you are depositing into that bank as soon as you start getting your period. And you reach peak um, deposits to your bank, and it shuts down in your mid to your mid 20s mid to early 20s that's where you've reached peak bone density after that you can only maintain or lose so if during your adolescent years or your teenage years or your your early college years you had any eating disorders if you had any issues with bone density if you had any issues with your period at that point and you did not reach peak bone density, you only reached 80% peak bone density, 75% peak bone density, 50% peak bone density, and then in your 30s, it's already started to trend downward, and then you have a baby, and you have that decrease in estrogen, and maybe you also have a decrease in the amount of strength training you're doing for the full year of you being pregnant, then into maybe the first three or six months postpartum, then you can imagine what the bone density of that in, that individual woman might look like and all of the problems that she might encounter in terms of stress fractures or um, ligamentous injuries in her 30s, in her 40s, um, mm-hmm. because she never reached peak bone density and she, she lacked the estrogen in her body for such a long time and then hit her 30s and started having children. And a lot of women aren't making that that connection that there that there is a connection between what is happening in their teenage years, their formative years of their estrogen and bone density, and then what's happening to them postpartum. Yeah, I think it's it's really hard to 
I think as you're a 15 year old, and maybe I'm like starting to realize this as, as a 30 year old, but like when you're 16, the idea of being any older than like 20 mm-hmm. is just shocking or like just yeah. not, not going to happen. Right. Like that's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's inconceivable basically. So it's really hard to, I think, be thinking about that proactively at all as a younger person. So I guess that's sort of where, where a mom comes in or a dad comes in and, You know what, though? I really think that's where coaches also come in. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, I I hear a lot about, you know, women my age um, who are retiring as professional athletes. You know, I'm 37, and they're starting to retire and start their own businesses. But they're also starting to talk about the dysfunction of their youth and the pressure that they felt from coaches, largely male coaches, Mm -hmm. as young female athletes to be lighter um, I don't know male coaches who are in high school coaches who are talking to girls about their periods. I mean, are you getting your period? Are you getting, are you seeing a, a gynecologist? Are you being tested to make sure that you have the right amount of iron, that you're getting enough calcium? That's not happening with coaches in high school, but it should. It yeah. should be happening at the high school level. You know, this the the idea that a woman is in high school is getting enough of a doctor's visit in a physical is a joke. Mm-hmm. You know, them running a simple CBC and saying, nah, you're kind of low in iron. This is my favorite thing. You're low in iron, but so are all women who are menstruating. Well, uh. that, does that question followed up by, are you menstruating? And by the way, low iron, a normal low iron for an, a human being is incredibly low iron for an active athletic menstruating female mm-hmm. so you have an iron of like 11.3 that's normal low but every every registered dietitian if you add in oh but i'm also running 60 to 65 miles a week and competing here and i haven't had a period in two years they're going to get concerned and they're going to start to figure out why and they've you know they've changed this female athlete triad name to being res which is a reduced energy deficit because it starts to incorporate men who have this disorder as well, where their body doesn't have enough energy to produce the hormones to, for women to have a period, but for men to even, even produce, um, to lay down more bone. It's leaching that calcium from their bone and they're ending up, you know, at collegiate levels and beyond with stress fractures and connective mm-hmm. tissue injuries as well. So reds really encompasses male and female athletes versus female athlete triad really focuses on, on simply just females. Um, and so, you know, I really think that that's where we need to, to also turn our focus to is the, you know, educating coaches and, and having GPs of, you know, pediatricians asking those questions of their young female athletes. Are you in sports? Let's take a look at your iron, your ferritin. Let's get a more comprehensive blood test. Let's look get a metabolic panel as well as a CBC because that's going to give me more information about what's going on with your nutrition as an athlete and really bringing in those registered dietitians to talk with athletes about how to eat in a way that fuels the activity that they're doing. So, that, you know, because they're not going to look... It's, 30 is really old to 15-year-old. We are so old to them. I know. And they aren't going to look They aren't going to look at me and you and be like, oh, yeah, I should really think about how it's going to impact me when I'm having children. They're not thinking about that. But we can think about that for them, and we can phrase it and, and frame that in a, in, in, a, in a conversation that involves their performance. 
you don't perform at your peak level when you are in a, in a deprived state, in an energy deprivation state. And we don't have to bring in anorexia and bulimia and body dysmorphia specifically if we think that that's going to trigger somebody into turning off from the information that we're giving them. We can say this is a reduced energy deficit and you are not giving your body enough energy to have a period. You aren't giving your body enough energy to, to, to take on all the systems that need to be taken on. So I think that we can we can change the conversation in that way and also empower coaches to to encourage their female athletes and their male athletes as well to eat in a healthy way. I have had more collegiate athletes tell me that they have other coaches tell them to lose weight um, oh. as runners and it is it is and these are people who are coming to me because they have stress fractures and you don't get a stress fracture in a vacuum. It doesn't happen because you're, you know, only because you're training too much or only because you don't eat. It's the combination of them. And we really need to address all of that as a whole. Oh, that is, that is upsetting. But yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. Um, I'm going to kind of switch gears a little bit. You just started a new business. So wait, is it open for business yet? Or when are you open for business? So it opens, our soft opening where I'm taking patients starts November 15th, and the big opening party is in January after everyone's had all their holiday parties. It's very difficult to have an opening of a business in during the holiday season in New York. So I'm going to wait until everybody's all done with the holiday parties and have a big party in January. But yeah, I start taking patients November 15th, and my business is only for women. It's exclusively for women. It's focused on women um, who are wanting to get pregnant, who are pregnant, or who are in a postpartum state, who are active. So, you know, like I said, I was a personal trainer for 13 years and, and a, I've been a marathon runner for 15 years and I've been a runner for 27 years. And my whole interest lies in keeping women active, as active as they want to be, getting back to activity, um, achieving their athletic goals that they have while they're pregnant and postpartum so that we can um, we can keep working against that, you know, that women gain you know, approximately two pounds every pregnancy and, and that just compounds over the years and women become inactive um, because they're so busy. I mean, we have children, we're so busy. So my goal is to work with the individual woman on how to create an, a fitness program that works for them, that is that works with how they can do it, when they can do it, where they can do it, that um, gets them feeling good about themselves and being the best mom that they can be. And I really, I love the intersection between fitness and physical therapy and, you know, all this endocrinology stuff that we were talking about with like blood work and, and mm-hmm. hormones and things like that. And I love how, I love the interplay between them and how we can really get a multifaceted whole, whole body approach um, to postpartum wellness, pregnancy wellness. Um, and that's, that's what my business is all about. I love that. I have to ask though, you just started a new company. You have a four and a half month old and how old is the other one? Three. three And a a three year old and you run marathons and you're, you know, married and have like a normal human life. Uh, How? (laughs) I I am very fortunate. I have a lot of help. My first, my husband is a very active, helpful partner. He he has pushed me to open my own business for so many years. Um, he pushed me to open my personal training business. He pushed me to open my physical therapy business. He pushed me to go to per, per, uh, physical therapy school. He is really incredibly supportive of 
all of these endeavors that I've undertaken. And he, he has played, he is a very active partner. You know, he is mm-hmm. up in the morning with the kids, helping with them. He is helping me stay on top of, you know, we're, we're working with scheduling and things like that. He comes home, we make dinner. Like he's a very active supportive partner. So I'm very lucky first and foremost with my husband. And then we are very fortunate to have an incredible support system at home with nannies and babysitters. Um, who, you know, take my son to school and help me take care of the baby, uh, work with our schedule, who care for our children as much as we do. And our nanny has been with us since our son was born, and she is um, she's wonderful, and, and uh, we're very fortunate to have her, and she's um, such an intricate part of why our, our family works the way that it works. Um, but you know what it is? It's a lot of scheduling. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of like syncing calendars and planning months in advance. And it's a lot of sacrifice. You know, we don't go on vacation a lot. Um, we get, we are fortunate to see family. We, we have a little uh, a house that we are able to go to on the North Fork of Long Island to get away from the city. Um, but we, we have a lot of focus and a lot of drive as a family and, and we have goals and, we write them down and we're very nerdy about it, but um, we have a lot of support and we're fortunate that we're able to, to have all the support that we have. Um, but, you know, that doesn't change the fact that I'm the one who does all the billing and I'm the one who's doing all of the <laughs> coordinating and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and ordering all the, you know, the, the paper towels and the toilet mm-hmm. paper and the diapers and going to all the kids, doctors, appointments and stuff. Um, but yeah, we, we have busy lives. We're very active. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, I mean, you know, you, you've been running marathons for 15 years. You've been a runner for pretty much your whole life. What mm-hmm. does a, what does a normal week of training look like now? And I mean, I'll say maybe like what a normal week of training looked like, I guess maybe pre baby. And then now yeah. with baby. So I realized so baby, very different. Yeah, It's a little different. Um, before babies in general, it was just, it was very much like everybody else's training schedule. But now after kids, after my first son or my, or my first child, my son, um, I didn't rush back to training. Um, but when I did go back to training, there was a lot of running home after work. Um, you know, bringing my running clothes to work, leaving my scrubs at work or my work clothes at work, wherever I was working at the time Mm -hmm. and running home because it would take me approximately the same amount of time to run home, run five miles home as it did for me to take the train home. And Mm -hmm. so I did a lot of that, a lot, a lot of that. Um, and then I, I would, um, I do, I would run on the weekends. Um, but a lot of my training changed in my, my volume. Um, I focused more on strength training to prevent injury, but to also, get in better shape, get in better conditioning so that my runs were more productive. So I didn't have to do as many miles to get into better shape. I was doing a lot more lifting, high intensity, exercising like three times a week. And I was running maybe, maybe three times a week. And sometimes I would run and lift in the same day and it would be a short run um, or I'd break them up in the day um, and lift in the evening after my son went to bed um, or on the weekend. And Sometimes I, it, 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 running didn't happen, and it was like once a week that it would happen. Um, but a lot of it was just figuring out, you know, where did I have dead time? And I had dead time in my commute, and so I'd do it then. And after my son would go to bed and we'd have dinner, there was kind of this dead time where, like, my, my husband would like to wind down in one way, and I was like, well, I could get a 30, quick 30-minute 30 workout in and mm-hmm. still wind down with him later. So 
you know, finding those times and making my workouts extremely productive in a very short period of time, um, as opposed to just doing a ton of junk miles, I would do, I would, I would do like a workout and it would be a workout and a workout and then maybe a long run, longish run, um, as opposed to spending a lot of time just, just kind of garbage miles up and down. And, um, and now after two babies, it's, very similar except for um with my son when i only had one i did take him on runs sometimes and now i just don't because that that running time is my time mm-hmm. so that workout time is my time and so i really uh, if it's 30 minutes it's 30 minutes and it's all me it's funny you said that i was just thinking the most the most productive workout times i've ever had have also been the busiest times in my life versus when mm-hmm. like i'm not working as much and i have more time i manage to yeah fill it with junk miles and stuff like that but yeah it's when I'm really busy that the workouts get hyper focused and just like you know you're nailing them you're getting them in whenever but when you have all the time somehow you end up either not doing it or doing kind of a crappy job at it it's really odd well I really believe and you know I'm I started training for Chicago for next year a couple of weeks ago um and by training I mean like I I started lifting weights Mm-hmm. months ago like after I had my daughter and that was the very first thing I did I did not run uh, that running was not the first thing I did it never is lifting weights and and doing my strength training my core work that is always the first thing that I do and I did it for two months before I started running and that is that is for for me for my patients that's where all the 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 strength and the function is going to come from is from the strength of your body prior to running. Running doesn't make you stronger. It makes your heart stronger, but it doesn't make your muscles stronger. It just breaks down your muscles. So if you're not compensating by also getting in the gym, by also doing conditioning exercises, by also doing strength training exercises, you're just beating your body down. And I know that. And so that's how I started. So I very much treat myself just like a patient. And I did not, I, running was not the first thing I did. The first thing that I did was to get on a, a spin bike and just start moving my legs. I didn't even have any resistance on it. <laughs> I was just m- moving my legs because I had C-section. It was my second C-section of my fourth abdominal surgery. So I knew that I wasn't ready for force right away. So I just kind of moved my legs, went walking, you know, hung out with my daughter. And then I just started with some very body weight exercises and started to go from there. It's very much how I progress my patients. Um, Because running is something that benefits greatly from strength training. Running benefits greatly from core work. Running benefits greatly from HIIT exercises. You don't, running is not something that translates really well into anything else, but everything else translates really well into running, swimming, cycling, hit exercises, mm-hmm. um, strength training, all benefits runners. So that's where, that's where I start with that. And luckily for me, like you're saying, it's like 30 minute workout done, you know, yep, like I love get that. it, get it, get it over with and be done. Mm-hmm. Perfect. All right. And last thing is just, yeah, where can people find you and get onto that, uh, that client list that opens up soon? Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, it's reform PT NYC, all lowercase one 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 straight through word dot com reform pc nyc dot com it's reform physical therapy and the website launches um in a couple of weeks but the information to contact me is already on there so you can send me an email get on my client list um and start up getting appointments starting november 15th which is really exciting and um you can also find me on instagram and on twitter on facebook at reform pt nyc exactly the same as the website one word all the way straight through and on Instagram and on Facebook and on Twitter, it's where I'm going to share a lot of 
videos, I started to ask people, what do you want to, what do you want to hear? What do you want to want? What do you want me to talk about? Mm-hmm. I'm going to post videos that have exercises. I'm going to post videos that have, um, information where women can go if, you know, if they, if they're having difficulty with X, Y, and Z, if there's going to be a newsletter that goes out when you sign up at the website. And, um, I think it's going to be a really, I want to create a community, even if I can't see you, if I can't be your physical therapist, and you're just looking for some exercises to do, I want to be able to provide that for women too. So it's not exclusive to just my New York City client base, that I really want women to use reform as a resource um, nationwide, worldwide. So follow me on Instagram and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. I, I like to share all my, my friendly public floor physical therapists. I like to retweet them too. Um, so it's, I really, I'm really excited about the community that we're creating beyond just the four walls of a clinic. I love it. This is all stuff I'm just so passionate about. So I think it's awesome what you're doing. I'm I'm really excited to have the opportunity to share it with people. And I, I think there is a huge amount of interest in this, right? Like yes. women, oh women are all about this and we make up, you know, more than 50% of the population in the United States forget about the world. So um, the more that we can share it with our friends and the more that we can be outspoken about it, and the more that we can destigmatize and not normalize these postpartum injuries, um, the more that women can come out of the woodwork and say, yeah, me too, and I've had this problem, and can we, can we address this? And we can start helping each other, and we can start providing the resources for women to, to get help and to lead healthier lifestyles and be, be the best moms that we can be because we are our best selves when we feel good about ourselves, and we are our best moms, and we are our best partners when we feel good about ourselves and, and about our images and about feeling strong. And so that's really my goal is to help women feel like the, their best selves. Oh, I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Okay. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Hey guys, before you go, we just wanted to have one quick word from our sponsor, Health IQ. Health IQ is a life insurance company that helps the consummate athlete like you save money on your life insurance. To find out more, you can check out healthiq.com slash C-A-P-O-D. That's C-A-P-O-D for all the details and to take a free quiz. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Consummate Athlete Podcast. To check out all of the show notes for this show, go to consummateathlete.com. And to follow along with our various adventures on the social medias, you can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash consummateathlete or follow me, Molly Herford, at Molly J. Herford on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Peter Glassford on Twitter and Instagram. And if you could do us a huge favor and rate and review the podcast over on iTunes, that helps us bring on more guests, you know, get more episodes out and do more cool stuff. So we would be forever grateful. And if you're looking for coaching for endurance sport or just for health and wellness, uh, you can check out smartathlete.ca. And for amazing outdoor content, you can check out theoutdooredit.com. Aw, honey. And that's theoutdooredit.com for Molly Herford's writing and all things outdoors. All right. Thank you so much for listening, guys, and we'll see you next time.